0: Hello Four Corners Church. It is always a joy to come to you with God's Word as we have been doing now by video for quite some time. You have already noticed as Ken read the scriptures to you earlier, you have already noticed a little change in scenery today. Uh, We are once again, as you can clearly see, filming at the building. So I am very happy to be out of my bedroom and off of my chair as I said when I started that, I never thought that I would be preaching from my bedroom, let alone from a chair seated. So I am grateful to be back here at the building bringing God's word to you. As Ken has already indicated, I just want to reassure you all as a congregation, all of us as a congregation, that as elders we are continuing to to discuss the COVID-19 situation as it relates to our gathering as a local church. Uh, Also, I would tell you that I had a Zoom. I participated in a Zoom meeting with about 20 other pastors this past week from the Coweta and Fayette County area. Just talking about how they're responding, uh, how they're relating to the people in the church and and just practical things, but also uh, trying to process the news and governmental reports and so forth. And at this point, there really is no specific information or change that we are bringing or that we need to convey, but I just want to reassure all of you that the elders continue to dialogue about next steps for our church. So by no means are we just uh, sitting around letting this continue, but we are very much uh, talking about this and we are seeking counsel from other churches uh, and from other folks in general. So uh, we, we long to be back together, and we pray that you do as well. If you would please go with me in your Bibles at this time to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Today we will enter into a new section that is very personal and intimate by nature. In the greeting, verses 1 to 7, Paul introduced himself, his message, and his mission. So we've seen each of those. In verse 1, he introduced himself. And then in verses 2 to 4, he introduced his message, the gospel that he preaches. And then in verses 5 to 7, he introduces for his readers, as he greets them, he introduces his mission. And at the end, as part of his mission, he introduces to us who are reading it now, he introduces his original audience, the Christians in Rome. And he describes them in several ways. He describes these Christians as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, as those who are loved by God and called to be saints, as those who are recipients of God's grace and peace, grace and peace that come from the triune God. And one of the questions on the deep sheet this past week was meant to uh, to get us to, to think about and talk through our identity as Christians. Sometimes we lose clarity or just lose assurance regarding who we are in Christ, our identity as Christians. And so I hope that you enjoyed this past week with your brothers and sisters in Gospel Community Group discussing who we are in Christ. What is a Christian? Who is a Christian? It's a great opportunity Two, to bring once again before our children, what are the marks of a Christian? How does the Bible actually describe a believer? And it's interesting that these are the words that Paul chooses to use in his most robust greeting, in his most robust introduction to the Christians at Rome, these various house churches meeting throughout the city. So Paul has already introduced himself and his audience. We've seen that verse 1, himself and his audience there at the end. But now beginning in verse 8, he brings the two together. Himself and his audience, he bridges the two, bringing them together in an intimate way. Now, Paul introduces his heart. The heart behind the ministry. So the title for the sermon today is The Heart Behind the Ministry Part 1. Today we will just look at verses 8 to 12. He, he goes on to describe more about his heart in subsequent verses, but today we're just going to look in Part 1 at verses 8 to 12. I want to start this morning by giving you a couple of quotes just to give you a sense of Of what Paul is doing, a sense for what Paul is doing in these verses. So here's a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Here Paul opens his heart and says, in effect, Before I show you my theology, I am going to show you myself. Paul is bearing his heart before his readers, before he gets into all that he's going to cover in this letter, so many different aspects of the gospel, so many doctrines that he will uh, dig into throughout the 16 chapters of Romans. He first wants to bear his heart, to show himself. And here's another quote from John Calvin. He says this, Paul disposes them to a teachable spirit By testifying his love towards them. Giving them first his love. Opening up their hearts to receive the truth. And the key to unlock their hearts. To open up their hearts. Is love. Love. That is what we see here. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans. Meaty theology matched by meaty love. And oftentimes we divorce those two. And I think someone coming to the epistle to the Romans, that can easily happen. I remember reading a Paul Tripp book one time where he was describing his uh, work with Romans in seminary and how it had become just for him something merely intellectual, merely conceptual, merely academic. And Paul wants none of that. As he begins to get into his letter, as he's leaning forward into his theology, he wants us to remember that meaty theology must be matched by meaty love. A sincere love for these people from the heart. And I just want to submit to all of us that in any area of ministry, and we know from Ephesians 4, 12, that those who have a teaching role or or a leadership role within the church are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So it's not just quote-unquote ministers who, who do ministry, but that all the saints in the church are ministers in a sense, that all the saints, all Christians, are being equipped for the work of ministry. And we know, too, that we have a ministry in our homes, a mom and a dad are, are, are carrying out a ministry within the home. They are, they are administering the gospel of Christ to their children and to one another. So in any area of ministry, whether that's in home or, or in your home or at church or anywhere, our people, our children, need to know our love. Do you see that? As Paul goes into his letter... A teachable spirit comes from a a heart that is, is loved. Someone who receives our love will be far more likely to receive our instruction. I remember hearing this a lot years ago when my dad would share his testimony of getting into ministry Uh, My dad is a pastor, as I've said before, and when he became a pastor, the pastor who ordained him, who was involved very much in his growth towards ministry, uh, said he wanted to give him three pieces of advice for ministry. And here's what he said. Love your people, love your people, love your people. And we see that emphasis very much here. Obviously, we know there's much more that could be said about ministry, On a practical level, but at the heart of it all is love for real people. As we said last week, ministry is about people. And Paul is making that very clear here at the onset of his epistle. So, we're going to spend our time this morning unpacking the heart behind the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This heart of love. For his Roman readers, as we find it here in these verses, verses 8 to 12 of the first chapter. And what we're going to see here are three expressions of his heart for them. And these are our three points. So once again, your kids are there, uh, hopefully with their pencils in hand or pens or whatever, paper, Bible, writing down these points. Uh, Hopefully they'll be asked about these points in Gospel Community Group this week. But here they are, three expressions of Paul's heart For them, his heart of love for them. First, his gratitude. Second, his prayers. And third, his desire. So, if you would stand with me now for the reading of God's word, we're going to read all of verses 8 to 12. We've read now uh, verses 1 to 7 many times. So, hopefully, those are ingrained in your heart and in your head. And they've set up the letter for you as they were originally meant to do for the Roman readers. But now we move to a new chunk of text, verses 8 to 12. This is God's Word, and it is perfect and profitable for His people. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and... Just ask that He will illuminate His Word. We, we recognize that without the Spirit's help, all preaching, all time in the Word just becomes uh, a means for pride or a means for some kind of vainglory. And so we, we pray that the Spirit would, would be over this time in His Word, that He would be over it here in this recording of it and then over our hearing of it. Sometime on Sunday. So let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessing. Father, we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father God, you have blessed us immeasurably in Christ. Now Lord, as we looked at this past week, sometimes it's, it's just so difficult to even get our heads around who we are in Christ. We, we get immersed in the challenges of life, the, the pleasures of life, the routines of life, and we just lose sight of our identity in Christ. And Father, what a joy, what a reminder it is as we come to your Scripture again To be reminded that we come to it as beloved children. As those who are called to belong to Christ. That Christ owns us. That we are in his hand. That he suffered and died and bore your wrath to purchase us. So that we could belong to him forever as his bride. Father, what wonders there are here in these truths, wonders that we haven't even begun to understand. So we pray that as we hear your word today, that we would take heart in these truths and God that we would lean therefore out of that into a life that is filled with love, a life that we see here through these expressions of the Apostle Paul for these Roman Christians, most of whom he hasn't even met that we would have that love in our hearts because we know how much we are loved by you. God, we pray for grace today as we hear your word, that you would use it to bring real change, real repentance, that you would, as Paul even mentions here, that you would strengthen us, establish us in our faith. God, we need it every hour of every day. We ask for these these graces, these blessings from you, God, through Christ, by the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin our look at this passage with his gratitude. We see Paul's heart, verses 8 to 12, and beyond even, we see Paul's heart. And here, first, we want to look at his gratitude. So look with me, if you will, at verse Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So let's just stop there and consider this verse. The very first thing that comes to mind as Paul moves from his greeting the very first thing, the very, the very first place where his mind goes is thanks and gratitude. And it's amazing because this is so typical of Paul. It is typical of Paul, I think, in his heart. It's typical we see because we see that in his letters. This is the, the first place he goes. And it demonstrates his mindset and it specifically if we want to understand what, what is behind this, now there were conventions in place for letter writing that involved these kinds of things at the beginning of letters. But if you want to know what lies behind this typical practice of Paul to greet his readers and jump straight to gratitude, we have to go to a text like Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And listen closely to what Paul says there. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, whatever you write, whatever you say, whatever you pray, whatever, whatever happens, whatever behaviors and, and acts of service that you participate in, thanks to God through Christ. And that is exactly what what Paul is doing here. He's he's practicing what he preaches. He's doing exactly what he has told others to do. You know, one of the things that we often talk about as Christians, particularly today, this language in the last decade or so has become very prevalent. This language of being gospel-centered or the language of preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we praise God that this language is, is so prevalent because it centers us on the gospel. It gets us to, to think less about secondary or tertiary things and to go back to that foundation of the gospel, to go back to the core of who we are in Christ and to constantly be reminding ourselves of that. But we use this language so often that sometimes I think it loses its meaning. And we may be forced to once again ask the question, what in the world does that even mean? What does it even mean to be gospel-centered when it's become kind of a platitude? What does it mean to be gospel-centered or to preach the gospel to ourselves? And I think we get an answer here. This is how we do that. How is it that we can constantly be reminded of the gospel? I mean, let's be honest. We, we wake up in the morning, we jump uh, into our day, we get dressed, we go out about our day, we have meetings, we, we, we have our disciplines and our routines and, and people that we meet. But so often we just lose sight of the gospel. How in the world do we maintain gospel consciousness and gospel centrality? Well, the answer is here. It's embedded right here. Christ-centered gratitude in all things. That in everything we experience and in everything we do, we are constantly giving thanks to God through Christ. That is how we stay gospel-centered. And in fact, this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. You know, we often hear people mischaracterize what it means or looks like to be spirit Filled. And it is quite unfortunate that spirit-filled or being spirit-filled is associated with some sort of enthusiasm. That oftentimes it has to do with how many tears fall from your eyes or how active your hands are in a worship service or, or something like that. that. That being filled with the spirit is somehow synonymous with lots of excitement and enthusiasm. Well, Listen to the way Paul describes what it means and looks like to be spirit-filled in Ephesians 5.20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, exactly what I read in Colossians 3.17 and exactly what we see here in Romans 1.8. This is what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. This gratitude, this thankfulness that Paul has is for all the Roman Christians. As he says here, Paul loves them enough to thank God for them. He cares about them. He's attentive to them. He is thanking God for them. And specifically, Paul thanks God here for their renowned faith. In all the places where Paul has ministered, and we see him describing this, all the, all the places in the east. He's, he's now leaning west. He's, he's writing to the Roman Christians and he's wanting to go to Spain to minister the gospel there. But as he's gone around to all these places in the east, everywhere he has gone, the faith of the Roman Christians is known. The gospel has made its way to Rome. The imperial capital. And there are believers in Rome. And not just believers but sound believers. I think here packed into this idea is both the fact that there are believers in Rome. In other words the mere existence of their faith. But also it is a sound faith. That they have right faith. They have believed in the gospel. And notice this. It is in gratitude that we find Encouragement. What would a verse like this have done to the hearts of the Roman Christians? It would have encouraged them. Here is Paul encouraging them and saying, uh, your your faith is renowned all over the place. And that's an encouragement. But notice that the encouragement comes in the form of a, a vertical thanksgiving. That God is That Paul is showing gratitude to God and in that there is encouragement. And I want to say this to us. One of the key ways we encourage other people is by showing them how thankful to God we are for them and their spiritual growth. It's an easy way. You may not be a natural encourager. You may not be inclined to that. You may find yourself really struggling to do that. Well, here's a very easy prescription for how we can encourage people simply to give God praise and thanks for the things in their lives that we see God doing. And to do that in front of them. Let them hear you, let them see you doing that. Do you do that with your kids at home? Do you do that with your spouse, in your small group, in various meetings that you have with other folks here in the church or, or just others in your life? Thanking God. Identifying points for gratitude. Identifying points horizontally that you can give gratitude for vertically. And notice that I said thankful to God, the vertical. Paul is not thanking them. Oh, thank you for your great faith. Thank you that that you are standing firm. That's not what Paul says at all. He is thanking God. It is God who has given them faith. The gift of faith is something that comes from God. And this reminds us that anything good that we see in another person, particularly here thinking about other believers, anything good, anything noteworthy that we see in other believers is a gift from God. You know, as a pastor, one of the things that when you're going to seminary and you're kind of m- moving up into ministry is you you obviously have pastors, whether in history or uh, contemporaneously today, pastors today, that you look up to. I have Pastors in history that I look up to and pastors now preaching whom I look up to. And and you probably are the same. You have Christians in general. And for me, it's the same. Christians in general whom you look up to. It is important to always remember that anything good that you see in these people is a gift from God. Give God the praise. Give God the thanks. Not these individuals as though they themselves have done this within themselves, God has done this in them. This is, with Paul here, God-centered gratitude. And because it is God-centered, it is Christ-centered. Thanks to God through Christ. And notice, just briefly, my God. He thinks, Paul says, I think my God. This is personal He's not just thinking some deity up there far away. He is thinking the God whom he knows personally. And that is, he is the God whom we know personally as our God. Before we move on to the next verses, I want to draw out an implication here about the relationship between gratitude and envy. It may not be something that you have considered And here I want to quote Martin Luther as he brings these two things together gratitude and envy, or these two topics together. He says, This Christian love manifests itself in this that it rejoices at every good thing that it sees in others, especially at their spiritual blessings and thanks God for them. On the other hand, hear this, envy manifests itself in this, that a person is grieved because of the good which he recognizes in others and so wishes him evil. So which is it? Which is it for you? Gratitude or grief? You know one of the envy is one of those things that none of us wants to admit. Envy is disgusting because it is murderous in nature. It's it's thievery by nature. Why? Because not only does it have a kind of covetousness about it, but it, but it actually rejoices in its darkness and its wickedness. Envy rejoices in Wrong or bad done to another. It it rejoices in the calamity, in the destruction that happens in another person's life. It is murderous in nature. It is so dark and yet so prevalent. That's what's amazing about this is none of us would like to think that we have envy in our hearts. But the fact of the matter is that it is so pervasive. It is so pervasive that we view others in this way. What is the remedy? What Paul outlines for us here. Being grateful to God for them. You cannot actively thanking God for what you see in other people that is noteworthy and in ways they excel beyond you. You cannot actively be doing that truly and be harboring envy in your heart at the same time. This is the way we wage war on envy. So we see first his gratitude as he's bearing his heart. Secondly, I want you to see his prayers. Paul's prayers have already been implied by his gratitude. It's already implied. He's been thanking God for them, for these believers, in prayer. But now Paul is explicit in saying, I've been praying for you. So up until this point, we know he's been praying for them because he's been thanking God for them. But now he wants to be very explicit and specific in letting them know, I am praying for you. Look at the language that he uses in verses 9 to 10. and 10a, the very beginning of verse 10, we'll go on and treat the, the rest of it in a moment. Here's what he says. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul's comments about his prayers for them begins with the strongest possible assurance that you could give anybody. Uh, It's it's incredible the language that that he begins with here. He wants to assure them beyond doubt. He wants them to have absolutely no doubt regarding his prayers for them. It is as though Paul is saying, look, you can't see my heart. You can't see my private Prayers. You're, not, you're not there listening to my private prayers. But God can and God is. And He is my witness. He is my witness that I pray for you and that I pray for you like this. As he goes on to describe it. Now this statement is breathtaking. When you consider it in light of a passage like what we find at the end, at the end of Romans 11. So, at the end of Romans 11, Paul describes God. Verses 33 to 36. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen this is this is one of those passages where you just want to fall on your face you want to lay prostrate on the ground in the dirt on your face before God the way Paul describes him here and to think that Paul has This God in mind, when he calls him forward as a witness to what he is saying. It is this God that Paul calls as his witness. And he does so because he doesn't want them to have any doubt whatsoever about his prayers. This is maximum assurance that we're getting here. You know, I'm sure you've experienced how reassuring it is when you know that someone is praying for you. Now, let me say that a little bit differently. How reassuring it is when you know that someone is really praying for you. You know, there's a difference between, uh, and we all, we all have to battle this, that whole I'm praying for you or I'm praying, you know, and we say these sorts of things. Remember that we will give an account for every careless word we speak. We are told by the Lord but we do that. We use that language so carelessly and so casually. Uh, but Paul here wants them to know, no, no, I am I am really, really, really praying for you. And we've experienced that in our own lives. When we know someone is really praying, I, I feel this way about my mom. My mom is a godly woman. She loves the Lord and she is, she's devoted to prayer, to private prayer. And so when my mom tells me that she's praying for me, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, to use that language I heard so much as a kid, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that my mom is really praying for me and in concrete ways. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here but he doesn't just want to assure them of the fact of his prayers. That is, that, that he is praying. He doesn't just want to assure them of the fact of his prayers, that they're actually happening. He also wants them to know about the sincerity of his prayers. He prays for them. Paul, as Paul describes it here, he prays for them as an act of service to God from the heart that's the way he describes it here he says whom i serve speaking of god whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son these are not just prayers these are the purest of prayers they are worship they are service to god they're worship they're done in the spirit they're done at the core of who he is these are these are to use Uh, The the imagery of Jesus there in in the Sermon on the Mount, these are not the kind of superficial, uh, prideful, self-righteous prayers that the Pharisees pray. I mean, these are real prayers from the heart. They are worshipped, they are from the heart, and they are situated in the gospel. As he says here, in the gospel of his son. These are not just prayers. These are the purest possible prayers. The most sincere, from the heart, kinds of prayers that you could be praying for someone. When Paul prays for his Roman readers, he is neither going through the motions, just reading his prayer list, nor... Is he idolizing them? And that's important because we can pray sometimes for people really for their own sake. I mean, just in and of themselves. They're just, they're just sort of isolated from the Lord. We're praying for them, uh, but it's not, it's not seen as related to God at all, really. We're just, we're just praying kind of horizontally. We're idolizing other people. We're idolizing uh, situations in their lives or in our own lives as we pray for people whom we love or we're just going through the motions. So we either either make too much of the person whom we're praying for, or too little of them. That's not what Paul is doing here at all. Instead, he is doing what he describes in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, that would include praying, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do you see that? Why? Why is Paul praying for them? Because he's doing it for the Lord in the gospel, he, his ministry in the gospel to God. He is serving God. It's the language he uses here, and he uses the language, uh, the verb that he uses is the language of, of, of priestly service that we get in the Old Testament. It's, it's the language that is service to God that is worship in a kind of religious priestly sense. He is doing this for God on their behalf. Two implications, I think, are present here for us. First, our prayers for others. Get this. This is so important. Our prayers for others can only be sincere when they are service to God. It's it's ironic a little bit because we, we tend to think the more we focus on the people we're praying for, the more sincere we are in praying for them, but that's actually not the case. The truth is that, that insofar as we can see through the people we're praying for to God as worship to Him for His glory, it then ropes back around and makes our prayers for those people more sincere, more pure. That's the first implication. A second implication is that prayer is quite simply work. Prayer here used in the language of, of service and worship. Prayer is hard. Prayer is work. It is labor. It is toil. I'm convinced, and I see this in my own life, I'm convinced that the reason we don't pray more is because we. I think we fall into the error of thinking that prayer is something that just should always come natural. It's something that should be really quite easy. And there is a sense in which this is true because Prayer is breathing, as John Piper describes it. It is, it is a Christian's breath. Prayer is talking to God. It is, it is very fluid in that way. Prayer is relationship with God as Father, Abba. And so there's reason to say that prayer should be fluid and constant and easy in that respect. But there's another side to prayer. Prayer is that, but it is also work. It is a service service. To God is an act of priestly service to God. We are a priesthood of believers. We are bringing petitions to the Lord through our high priest, Christ, to the Father. And that is hard work. Maybe the problem with your prayer life is that you have bought in to the false idea that prayer should be easy. And when you find that it is not easy, when you find that it is hard to concentrate that it is hard to to focus, that it is hard to compile prayer requests and consistently keep up with prayer requests and follow up on prayer requests. You just shut down. You just shut down because you, you fall into the trap of thinking, man, it should just be easier than this. And you get frustrated. Maybe if we saw it for what it really is, we would arm ourselves And we would walk into it as labor. We would roll up our sleeves and get to the work of prayer. Laboring and toiling for the glory of God and the good of his people. So we've looked at the fact of his prayers and the sincerity of his prayers. But now I want you to see the consistency of his prayers, He says in verses 9 to 10, listen to the language. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul has been constantly and consistently praying for these Christians in Rome for a long time, for a while. As one commentator puts it, this is prayer offered at frequent and regular intervals. You know, we sometimes think prayer without ceasing uh, means that Paul is just walking around literally praying for the Romans maybe every, every 10 minutes or every hour that he's just constantly going on uh, speaking or saying things in his heart to God. Well, that's, that's not what's implied here at all. This is frequent and regular intervals of prayer. We see a little bit of this with Daniel. Remember, Daniel, he would pray uh, regularly at different points in the day. This is the kind of thing that is being referred to here, that, that in the life of prayer, which is, which is in fact spontaneous in the moment, but there are also times set aside for prayer. And in all of that, Paul is, as he says here, without ceasing and always praying for these believers. He hasn't even met. the folks in this church. He knows some of them who are there, but he has not met these Christians at large. Let me ask you, have you experienced this persistence and staying power in intercessory prayer that we are seeing here? Or would you say that your prayer is characterized by a burst? A burst followed by giving up. We do so many things in the Christian life based on bursts, bursts of emotion. We, we come out of a sermon and we have a burst on a Sunday afternoon, or we have a devotion time that is really encouraging and we burst forth into our day, and then it just fizzles. And what Paul is describing here is a kind of persistence, a kind of staying power that should govern all of our disciplines in the Christian life and all of our service in the Christian life, that we should not be the kinds of Christians that live based on bursts, but rather constancy. And that comes only from the Spirit. Only as we moment by moment walk in His power. We all are called to this kind of intercessory prayer life. Maybe as you go through this, you say, you know, we're talking about an apostle here, and that's great. And maybe if we're going to draw an application out of that, maybe that would include some pastors, pastors, missionaries. It would include elders. Maybe we could even kind of go down to other leaders. But, you know, let's say that you, you don't fit into any of those categories that I just mentioned. So you, you're just kind of sitting there thinking, well, this is what people need to be doing for me. This is what people need to be doing for me. So you're going to walk out of here. Uh, well, you're not going to walk out of here. You're going, to walk, you're going to walk from your living room to your kitchen this time around. But you're going to, you're going to think after this sermon, okay, now I'm gonna, I've got a checklist for all those people in my life who should be doing this and how they're doing, you know, you give them a grade. But what we find from Paul is that this kind of intensity of intercessory prayer, this, this intense life of intercessory prayer is for all believers. And we know that because of what we find in Ephesians 6.18. Paul is not writing to the leaders of a particular church there. He's writing to Christians at large. And in fact, Ephesians has been regarded as one of Paul's most universal letters, that it could have been very much a circular letter that circulated around the area of Ephesus to various churches and groups of Christians. And this is what Paul says there, praying after he's gone through the the armor of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we are called to as believers. What an amazing context of of love and worship there would be in the churches gathered all over our area, the churches that exist everywhere everywhere, when this became concrete and real in the lives of God's people, this kind of praying, this kind of intensity with praying, if Ephesians 6.18 characterized every Christian in every church, which, by the way, that's Paul's intention, that's Paul's assumption, is that that's the way it's going to be. That's what Christians, just as, just as certainly as they need to have the helmet of salvation and, and, the, and the shield of faith and that sword... This is the kind of prayer life that all Christians ought to have, as Paul describes it. How that would radically reshape our lives, our families, and our churches, our communities. But as we come to the end of our passage for today, we need to see that these prayers for the Roman Christians, though certainly varied in nature, have one particular focus. And that leads to our third point. So we've looked at his gratitude, we've looked at his prayers, and now we come to our third point, his desire. Look at the latter part of verse 10 up through verse 12. Asking that somehow by God's will, so he's coming out of his prayers for them, What's he asking God for specifically? Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. For a long time now, Paul has had an intense desire with regard to the Roman Christians. And this has been going on for a while. Romans 15, 23. I have longed for many years to come to you. This is, this is a desire, not that's right here as Paul writes this letter. You know, for the last couple of weeks, I've just had this desire. So I'm going to write you this letter and I hope I get to come visit you. That's not what Paul is saying at all. For a long time. Paul has had the desire to be present with these Christians. As I said before, many of whom he has not, most of whom he has not met. The intensity of his desire comes through in his choice of words. So I want to look at just a couple here that really bring out the intensity of his Desire, much, at, much like unceasing and always brought out the, the, the constancy of Paul's prayers in, in what we looked at before. Here I want you to see a couple of details that bring out how intense this desire is for Paul. First, in the verb he uses for prayer in verse 10, translated here as asking. This verb is often translated as begging or entreating. It is a a strong verb of, of calling out to God for something that is very much desired. Paul has been earnestly asking God to at last make it possible that he be with these Christians, that he be able to come to these Christians. So that's the first observation I want you to make. Second, in the verb he uses at the beginning of verse 11. And it's conveyed clearly by the word, I long to see you. It means to have a strong desire for something. And that's why we get the translation longing, and that's a great way to put it, because when we think of the word longing, we do automatically think of that kind of intensity of desire, that, that earnestness with which we want something to be, something to take Place. Paul uses this verb just to give you an idea of uh, how what's packed into the verb, how it's used elsewhere as we interpret scripture with scripture. 2 Corinthians 5:2, Paul uses this same verb for our longing for our glorified bodies. That's an intense longing. He says, for in this tent we groan, speaking about our earthly body, in this tent we groan, longing, same verb, to put on our heavenly dwelling. And we also see it in 1 Peter 2 2, where it is used for the believer's hunger for God's word. There we read, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's amazing. You can't read this language and and think that that we can just take Romans and and make it some kind of heady thing, make it some sort of doctrinal thing. We just sit around and debate doctrine and talk about these things. No, no, no. Paul has, has no use for that. For Paul, every bit of his doctrine is accompanied by a kind of longing for people, a longing to be with God's people and to build them up, which we'll talk about in a moment. This is the kind of intense desire That he has to be with, with, with people. And I think we can relate right now in very specific ways to this in our longing to be gathered back together again as a church. I mean, for for many people who've lived for quite a long time, there's never been a time when church had to be Suspended. It's, this is really unique. This is really strange. I was talking to one pastor this week, and we were talking about the way that different churches have gone about uh, doing services and doing things online, and and uh, how churches have responded to this. and And it's like this brother said uh, that you know th- there just isn't any playbook for this. There's no guidebook for that. Th- that we. This is so strange and so unique, but it has it has given us an opportunity. I think, to look into our hearts. And so let me say this to you. Christian, are you longing right now for God's people to be with God's people? Or are you just kind of quite content? Now, I'll be honest, some of us are more introverted than others. And so for those of us who are more introverted than extroverted, uh, there is a kind of contentment that goes with, with a time like this because by nature of our personality, we, we just tend to be to ourselves, tend to go on uh, with our, our routines and, the, and our tasks and so forth. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that, though. I'm not talking about the difference between being introverted and extroverted, being, wanting to be around people, being energized by people, and being energized by time alone. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about Christian love. I'm talking about what Paul has in his own heart here. And in view for these believers, a longing to be with God's people. Is this desire in your heart? This is a great test. It's a great opportunity to see what is in our hearts during this time. But we need to also see something else as we relate this to our current situation. We should also notice that this intense desire of Paul is submitted to, hear this, submitted to God's providence. He wants a good thing, but it has not yet been God's will. Notice what he says at the very beginning. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So on the one hand, as we look at our, at our church, as we, as we look into our own hearts as a church, we've got some folks who just cannot wait to get back together and gather and then we've got other folks who are just kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's going it's to be a while. And so what I want to submit to you is that this text speaks to both. This text speaks to those who may not have that longing in their hearts. And it checks us and, and helps us to go down deep and say, why am I not longing to be with God's people during this time? But it also speaks to those who are kind of maybe impatiently saying, let's do it now. Let's do it now. It's got to happen now. Longing with patience is what we find. Longing that is submitted to God's providence. Yes, Paul longed to be with the Christians, but it did not happen. All those years, all that time, it didn't happen. It wasn't in accordance with God's plan, God's will, God's providence. And so there there is a kind of longing with patience that we as a church need to have right now. Some of us being tested in our longing And some of us being tested in our patience and trust in God's providence. And why, why does Paul want so badly to be with these Christians? As we finish up this morning, why, why so much? Answer part one. In order that he might impart some spiritual benefit to them. By means of his apostolic ministry. By means of his gospel preaching. Paul wants to establish or strengthen them in their faith. And this tells us something important. Because he's just, he's just celebrated their faith. Even those whose faith is renowned need to be strengthened and established. Notice that. They've just been celebrated for their faith, as as Paul has given thanks to God for that faith in them. But now he's saying that he wants to come and establish them or strengthen them. And it reminds us that there is no maturity beyond maturing, that we're never done maturing. As Christians, we've never arrived, we're never established all the way where we don't need any more establishing or strengthening. So let me ask you this question. Are you still, as a Christian, in a need-to-be-strengthened mindset? I think this is particularly difficult for uh, Christians who are in leadership and older Christians, maybe who've been Christians for a while. There is a kind of smugness, a kind of self-righteous pride that can begin to fester if we're not careful in which we can begin to think that we really are already established and strengthened and, and we're good. We're reminded here that even even if our faith were renowned, we would still need strengthening grace. That's answer part one. Answer part two is a clarification. Mutual encouragement by each other's faith. Paul first seems to imply, Look, I want to come to you so that I can feed you something and give you something, and so that you can benefit from me. But then Paul switches that around, really. He clarifies that, even a, a slight corrective to that previous statement, lest they, lest they feel patronized. Paul then goes on to say, No, 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 for mutual encouragement. Paul himself, the great apostle, is also in need of encouragement from these believers. He's not beyond that. He's not above that. I want to read you a a quote here from John Calvin. He says, There is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ who is not able to contribute something to our benefit. No one. No one in this church. No Christian. But we are hindered by our envy and by our pride from gathering such fruit from one another. What we see here is that every Christian you meet has something to give. Every Christian has something to give because of God's grace in their life. And each of us is in need of getting. We all have something to give and we all need to get from one another. How much this really changes how we relate to each other as Christians, how the mature relate to those maybe who are less mature in the faith and how the less mature in the faith relate to those who are more mature. There is a mutuality about the Christian life no matter where you go. Put any two Christians in a room together and there is a mutuality there between them, a giving and a getting. So today, as we close We see Paul's heart. The heart behind the ministry. The heart that should exist behind every ministry. Behind all Christian service. May Four Corners Church be marked by gratitude, prayers, and desire. All of which is service to God for the strengthening of our fellow believers. Let's go to God in prayer. Ask for his grace in impressing this upon our hearts as we turn this off and go back to our routines that God would not allow this word to just pass us by. Father, thank you for your word we ask that it would not pass us by. Lord, how challenged we are during a time like this. How challenged we are to love, to long, and how you show us our hearts. And Lord, how challenged we are during a time like this to be patient, to trust your providence. Lord, it, it is it is a wrestling thing. And we pray that your spirit would apply these words To our hearts in very specific ways throughout the whole body of Four Corners Church and anyone else who's listening. Father, we pray that you would, God, we we desperately ask you to cultivate this love in our hearts, all of us, this walking in the Spirit that is so thankful. And encouraging to others. And that is filled with perseverance in prayer. And that has longing to be with God's people and to build them up and be built up by them. Oh God, we confess our sins to you. We pray for your mercy. We ask for help. As you promised to give us in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.